In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on this, our final meeting of the session. Help us to sum up and summarize and sort of congeal what we've learned and add to it as we go along. So we thank you for the many graces and blessings that you've given to us over the last ten weeks. And we don't want it to stop there, or here, or tonight. We want to continue our journey on studying and imitating and hopefully being the saint that you want us to be. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Tonight we want to talk about a couple American saints, one actually being the firstborn American woman to be canonized a saint of the Roman Catholic Church. She is not on the Roman calendar of saints, but only in the Diocese of the United States, and that's not unusual. Uh, we honor Elizabeth Ann Seton uh, because she is American-born and did most of her ministry here in America, although she spent a great deal of time in Italy. Uh, that is um, sort of a side point. Anyways, uh, she was an Episcopalian, actually by birth, born in the city of New York. And I'm going to read this because... It's kind of fascinating how this woman with a large family uh, got to do so many different things, some of it out of necessity uh, rather than desire. Uh, but nevertheless, it kind of sums up in a way how God can use all of us, regardless of what circumstances we find ourselves in uh, or what the situation might be, if we open our mind and our heart to God with love, uh, and that love can take a lot of different forms, open your mind and heart to God out of petition, out of help, out of desperation. Nevertheless, it's a form of love. But this lady really went through virtually all of that. And rather than trying to sum up and a few words. I'd like to read this to you because to me, I thought it was fascinating. Uh, she is the foundress and the first superior of the Sisters of Charity in the United States. Born in New York City, the 28th of August, uh, the year 1774. So, uh, this is just before the United States became separated from England. Of non-Catholic parents of very high position. She died in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And her family home and the property was turned into the beginning of what is now the Sisters of Charity. I've been there. It is a beautiful place, but I'm sure it looks a lot different than it did in her day. Her father, Dr. Richard Bailey, born in Connecticut and educated in England, was the first professor of anatomy at Columbia College and 
eminent for his uh, work as health officer of the Port of New York. Her mother, Catherine Charlton, daughter of an Anglican minister of Staten Island, New York, died when Elizabeth, Elizabeth was just three years old, leaving two other young daughters. The father married again, and among the children of the second marriage was Guy Charlton Bailey, whose convert son, John Roosevelt Bailey, became Archbishop of Baltimore. Elizabeth always showed great affection for her stepmother, who was a devout Anglican, and for her stepbrothers and sisters. Her education uh, was chiefly conducted by her father. They even had, you know, homeschooling in those days. Okay. He was a brilliant man of great natural virtue, who trained her to be self-restraint uh, and self-reliant, as well as in intellectual pursuits. She read industriously, her notebooks indicating a special interest in religious and historical subjects. She was very religious, wore a small crucifix around her neck, and took great delight in reading the scriptures, especially the Psalms, a practice she retained until her death. She was married on the 25th of January, the year 1794, that would have made her uh, just short of 20 years old, in St. Paul's Church in New York, to William McGee Seton of that city, by Bishop Provost, or Provost in this case. In her sister-in-law, Rebecca Seton, she found a friend of her soul, and as they went about on missions of mercy, they called themselves the Protestant Sisters of Charity. Business troubles, uh, troubles culminated on the death of her father-in-law in 1798. Elizabeth and her husband presided over the large orphanaged family. She shared his financial anxieties, aiding him with her sound judgment. Dr. Bailey's death in 1801 was a great trial uh, to his favorite child. In her anxiety for his salvation, she offered to God during his fatal illness the life of her infant daughter, Catherine. Catherine's life was spared, however. She died at the age of 90. This, this was the daughter now of Elizabeth Seaton. Okay. As Mother Catherine of the Sisters of Mercy, as she was known in New York, uh, Elizabeth Seaton's health required, as, rather Mr. Seaton's health required a, a sea voyage. He started with his wife and eldest daughter for Leghorn, uh, where the Felici brothers, business friends of the Seton firm, resided. The other children, William, Richard, Rebecca, and Catherine, were left in the care of the stepsister, uh, Rebecca Seton. From a journal which Mrs. Seton kept during her travels, we learn of her heroic effort in sustaining the drooping spirits of her husband during the voyage. Following a long detention in quarantine, and until his death at Pisa on uh, 27th of December, 1803, she and her daughter remained for some time with the Felici family. Uh, while with these Catholic families in the churches of Italy, uh, Mrs. Seaton first began to see the beauty of the Catholic faith. 
Delayed by her daughter's illness, and then by her own, she sailed for home accompanied by Antonio Felici and reached New York on June 30, 1804. Her sister-in-law, Rebecca, died in July. So you have a lot of deaths, a lot of illness, a lot of financial problems all along the way. A time of great spirituality, spiritual perplexity began for Mrs. Seaton, whose prayer was, If I am right, thy grace impart, still in the right to stay. If I am wrong, oh, teach my heart to find the better way. Mr. Hobart, afterwards an Anglican bishop, who had great influence over her, used every effort to dissuade her from joining the Catholic Church. While Mr. Felici presented the claims of the true religion and arranged a correspondence between Elizabeth and Bishop uh, Shebus. I don't know who that is. Uh, through Mr. Felici, she also uh, wrote to Bishop Carroll. That was Bishop Carroll of Boston, who established the uh, Baltimore Catechism. Elizabeth, meanwhile, added fasting to her prayers for flight. I'm sorry. <laughs> added fasting to her prayers for light. A little different. <laughs> Excuse me. The result was that on Ash Wednesday, the 14th of March, 1805, she was received into the church by Father Matthew O'Brien in St. Peter's Church, Barclay Square, New York. On the 25th of March, she made her first communion with extraordinary fervor. Even the faint shadow of this sacrament in the Protestant church it had such an attraction for her that she used to hasten from one church to another to receive it twice on Sunday. She, will, she well understood the storm that her conversion would raise among her Protestant relatives and friends at the time when she most needed them. Little of her husband's fortune was left, but numerous relatives would have provided ample for her and her children had not it been this barrier between them. <clears throat> she joined an English Catholic she joined an English Catholic gentleman named White, who with his wife was opening a school for boys in the suburbs of New York. But the widely circulated report that this was a proselytizing <laughs> scheme forced the school to close. A few faithful friends arranged for Mrs. Seaton to open a boarding house for some of the boys of a Protestant school. Back and forth, back and forth. Taught by the curate of St. Mark's. In January 1806, Cecilia Seaton, Elizabeth's young sister-in-law, became very ill and begged to see the ostracized convert. Mrs. Seaton was sent for and became a constant visitor. Cecilia told her that she desired to become a Catholic. When Cecilia's decision uh, was known, threats were made to have Mrs. Seaton expelled from the state by the legislature. Wow. <laughs> At her recovery, Cecilia fled to Elizabeth for refuge and was received into the church. She returned to her brother's family on his wife's death. Mrs. Seaton's boarding house for boys had to be given up. Her sons had been sent by the Felicis to Georgetown College. 
she hoped to find refuge in some convent in Canada where her teaching would support her three daughters. Bishop Carroll did not approve, so she relinquished this plan. Father Dubrog from St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore met her in New York and suggested opening in Baltimore a school for girls. After a long delay and many privations, she and her daughters reached Baltimore on Corpus Christi, 1808. Her boys were brought there to St. Mary's College, and she opened the school next to the chapel of St. Mary's Seminary and was delighted with the opportunities for the practice of her religion, for it was only with the greatest difficulty she was able to get to daily mass and communion in New York. The convent life for which she had longed ever since her stay in Italy now seemed less impractical. Her life was that of a religious, and her quaint costume was fashioned after one worn by certain nuns in Italy. Cecilia Conway of Philadelphia, who had contemplated going to Europe to fulfill religious vocation, joined her, and soon other postulants arrived. While the little school had all the pupils it could accommodate, Mr. Cooper, a Virginian convert and seminarian, offered $10,000 to found an institution for teaching poor children. A farm was bought a half a mile from the village of Emmitsburg and two miles from Mount St. Mary's College. Meanwhile, Cecilia Seaton and her sister Harriet came to Mrs. Seaton in Baltimore as a preliminary to the formation of a new community. Mrs. Seaton took vows privately before Archbishop Carroll and her daughter Anna. In June 1809, the community was transferred to Emmitsburg to take charge of the new institution. The great fervor and mortification of Mother Seaton, imitated by her sisters, made the many hardships of their situation seem light and in December 1809, Harriet Seton, who was received in the church at Emmitsburg, died there, and Cecilia also in April 1810. <clears throat> Against her will, and despite the fact that she had also to care for her own children, Mrs. Seton was elected superior. Many joined the community. Mother Seton's daughter, Anna, died during her novitiate, March 12, 1812, but had been permitted to pronounce her vows on her deathbed. Mother Seton and the 18 sisters made their vows on 19, or the July 19, 1813. The fathers superior of the community were the Sulpicians, Father Dubourg, Father David, and Father Dubois. Father Dubois held the post of for 15 years and <clears throat> labored to impress on the community the spirit of St. Vincent's Sisters of Charity, 40 of whom um, he, <coughs> excuse, pardon me, 40 of whom he had under his care in France. The fervor of the community won admiration everywhere the school for the daughters of the well-to-do prospered, as it continues to do, and enables the sister to do much work among the poor. 
1814, the sisters were given charge of an orphanage asylum in Philadelphia. In 1817, they were sent to New York. The previous year, 1816, Mother Seton's daughter, Rebecca, after long suffering, died at Emmitsburg. See, one right after the other. Her son, Richard, who was placed with the Felici uh, firm in Italy, died a few years after his mother. William the Eldest during the United, joined the United States Navy and died in 1868. The most distinguished of his children are most Reverend Robert Seaton, Archbishop of Heliopolis, author of a memoir of his grandmother, Roman Essays, and many contributions to the American Catholic Quarterly and other reviews. Um, let's see, I'm going to skip a little bit of this here. Her cause for canonization is entrusted to the priests, priests of the Congregation of the Mission, whose superior general in Paris is also superior to the Sisters of Charity, with which the Emmitsburg community was incorporated in 1850. After the withdrawal of the greater number of the sisters at the suggestion of Archbishop Hughes of New York State houses in 1846. This union had been contemplated for some time, but the need for a stronger bond at Emmitsburg, shown by the New York separation, hastened it. It was affected with the loss of only the Cincinnati community of sisters. With the Newark and the Halifax offshoots of the New York community and the Greensburg Foundation um, from Cincinnati, the sisters originating from the Mother Seton Foundation numbered in 1911 about 6,000 sisters. The original Emmitsburg community, now wearing the coronet and observing the rule just as St. Vincent gave it, naturally surpasses any of the others in number. It found in about 30 dioceses, it is found in about 30 dioceses of the United States and forms a part of the worldwide sisterhood, while the others are rather diocesan communities. Elizabeth Ann Seton was beatified in 1968 and canonized on September the 14th, 1975. So you can see a woman who went through all kinds of problems. Her mother died when she was three, and then her father remarried and had more children, all of whom died uh, almost immediately uh, or, or over a number of short years there. So in spite of much sorrow, sadness, financial difficulties, and bad health uh, of several of the members of the family, uh, this woman prevailed in fulfilling her role in God's plan of salvation. It shows that God can really use any and all of us if we open our minds and hearts uh, to giving ourselves to him. And that's where it begins, in prayer, in giving yourself to God. Now, that doesn't mean that immediately you're going to start seeing changes. Um, and that's what so many people are afraid of. Well, if I open my heart to God and I give myself to him, 
what about this? What about that? So forth. Well, they will all take care of themselves eventually. Um, it, it's amazing. I've over the years I've observed many conversions and many changes in people, and uh, it's really heartening to see God work in people's lives. And in many cases, the individual doesn't realize it in the beginning. It's only through prayer and uh, continual conversation with God and, and with God through Jesus Christ and being with Him uh, in prayer do they come to realize that God is truly working through them and with them. All right, but humility works through that also, and these people who open themselves to God and are used by God, rarely ever mention it. And they go about their business as if that's just the normal part of their life. And so you might see them and think of them as holy people. You don't generally think of them as saints right away. And yet, if they are following God's will, that's what they are. I don't know, excuse me, Dick. Did he say when the canonization first started? Seems to me the cause for canonization says the result of the official inquiries in the cause of Mother Seton, that is the cause for canonization, um, <clears throat> held in Baltimore during several years were brought to Rome and that's when they really began by special special messenger and placed in the hands of the postulator for the cause on the 7th of June 1911 so she wasn't canonized until 75 I believe it was so and that's not unusual yes yes uh, now, as you know, uh, last week we saw that video on uh, Juan Diego and the Blessed Virgin Mary. Well, that was 500 years, roughly, uh, before he was canonized. It, there is no specific time frame. Uh, they are not put on a, a belt, you might say, in the first come, first serve, or whatever, no. It's uh, whenever there is a, a need or a special uh, reason for it, then these saints are brought forth. For example, uh, Solandus Casey died in 1957. Uh, he is, has been declared venerable, but has not even reached the uh, blessed state yet. Okay. All right. Now, I'm going to turn the microphone over and the floor over to... Uh, Steve Pewley here, and he's going to talk. I think we have a, Houston, we have a problem. Okay, Father Damien. 
not a lot of information out there on him, but an interesting case nonetheless. Um, let me start with a little scripture. Matthew 25. Starting in verse 44. Uh, this is the, the parable of the, the judgment of the nations where Christ is talking about the sheep and the goats on the left and right. Or, you get it, vice versa. So the end of that parable is, uh, then they will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or ill or in prison and not minister to your needs? He will answer them, Amen, I say to you, what you did not do for one of these least ones, you did not do for me. And it seems, uh, in just the short reading on Father Damien, he lived this, this gospel passage. Uh, he was born in 1840 in Belgium, which uh, is literally a world away from the islands of uh what, what we know now as the state of Hawaii. Um, his father sent him to school. Uh, he was a poor farmer, and he did what he could to, to get his son educated. And uh, unlike some of our previous saints that we've studied, uh, it seems that Father Damien went to school and stayed out of trouble, uh, which was remarkable. But uh, he heard a, a redemptorist mission and decided to enter religious life. And there's really not much more to say about that. Uh, he he took the religious name Damien and uh, was ordained to the minor orders, which, if, if you remember, we had uh, the orders of subdeacon and acolyte, kind of like what we go through today when if you become a lector. I don't know if anybody's a lector. It's sort of like a minor order. Um, it's not a sacrament, but... This is what we called it. Um, shortly thereafter, he sent to Hawaii to mission to uh, the people there. So about May of 1864. So here he is, a young man in his early 20s, and full of zeal, and he's sent to, to Hawaii. Um, shortly after arriving in Hawaii, he's ordained to the priesthood, and his uh, and superiors encouraged this zeal, this young man. Uh, it seems that he was a doer. When something needed to be done, he, he went and did it. He built, with his own hands, he built uh, chapels and schools. They built homes. Um, and eventually he, he built the coffins in which he buried his flock. Uh, he ministered uh, spiritually and physically to the, to the poor and the sick in Hawaii and uh, was later sent to this the island of Molokai, which is, uh, I believe, it's the fifth largest island in the chain. And um, it was there that he he really uh, began to see the suffering. Uh, you know, when I when I did a little research on this, you look at the, the horrible disfiguring that leprosy um, can do to people. And here's this man ministering to these people just completely out of love. Um, he himself succumbs to the disease in 1885, and uh, despite his suffering, he continued to minister until his death in 1889. 
here, I'll just read John chapter 15, verse 12. <clears throat> That's a long quote, obviously. Yep, I have that wrong. My apologies. I need a few more post-its in here. <laughs> uh, no greater love hath a man than he who lays down his life for his friends. That was the quote I was going for. And it seems that Father Damien did just this uh, right up until the end. He was uh, beatified. Excuse me. Apologize. Yeah, it doesn't have that information here. Um, he died in April of 1889. Uh, he was canonized by John Paul II. We know this. Um, so recent, recently raised to the altars. So I started thinking, this this disease of leprosy, and here's where I went off on one of my little side. I think I explained in another class that I got interested in leprosy, and I thought. <clears throat> Excuse me, the scriptures talk about leprosy quite a bit in the Old Testament, but you don't hear about this horrible disfiguring, and you would think that in the scriptures you would hear about this. It seems that leprosy, what we know as modern day leprosy, is, is something quite different from what um, uh, the scriptures talk about. And I looked in the Jewish uh, encyclopedia, and the Septuagint translates Zarat, Z-A-R-A, accent A-T, uh, translates to the Greek as lepra. So that's where we get leprosy. Um, it seems that, to give the short answer, that leprosy in the scriptures was what we think of as psoriasis today. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't this horrible disfiguring where um, you, you know you have the the pustules and the and the even the loss of digits. If you've seen pictures of, of people who suffer from from modern day leprosy, uh, it seems that this isn't what the scriptures are talking about. And the Jewish Encyclopedia goes on to talk about how um, leprosy was believed to have been inflicted by God for those who sinned. And that kind of makes sense to how we, or what we read in the scriptures today. Um, it seems that the Jews believed that, that sin was the cause of leprosy. And this is why lepers were excluded from the community. Um, because they didn't want the sins to affect the community. Um, this is where we get the modern notion of segregating lepers. These, these folks that have the, the horrible disfiguring and the loss of, of digits or even, even whole limbs. Um, today there are over a thousand um, leper colonies still in the country of India. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, January 30th, <coughs> excuse me, which is uh, the date of uh, Mahat uh, Gandhi's death in India, uh, is World Leprosy Day. I thought that was interesting. There's a World Leprosy Day. Um, 
a little bit more about leprosy. It's, it's a non-curable bacterial infection, but it's, it's highly treatable. Um, you see mostly the problems that people have today are in, in the third world, uh, India, China, um, Bangladesh, areas like that. Um, the secondary infection is what causes the loss of the limbs and the digits. Um, so if that didn't take away your appetite for dinner, I don't know what will. But uh, I thought that was an interesting little branch off on, on leprosy. So just to wrap it back into to, um, Father Damien, he's not dealing with, with someone with psoriasis or eczema or skin problems. He's dealing with the poorest of the poor. And um, he really gave his whole life. No concern whatsoever for himself. And uh, this truly is what made him a saint. That's how concerned they were with, with the disease, I guess. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. I, could, I think you can see the difference between Father Damien, who did kind of one thing, you might say, great as it was, as compared to Elizabeth Seaton, who had multiple children of her own, plus her father's from another marriage, uh, and so many other uh, adventures and misadventures. So God, again, uses all kinds of people in all situations uh, to serve him and to serve his church and his people. Uh, I'd like to sort of summarize a lot of what we've covered now in the past ten weeks. One of the ways we can do that, and talk instead of talking about saints, I'd like you to think about it in another way. The saints are often referred to as mystics. And not all mystics are saints, but then not all saints are mystic. But in general, I'd like to read a little bit of the definition of what is a mystic or mysticism. It says, in general, mysticism implies a relation to and an initiation into something exceptional an occult, exalted, or secret. In philosophy, it is studied as the religious yearning of the human soul to be intimately united with the divine, and the system or discipline which tries to affect this union. In Catholic theology, it treats of the spiritual acts and states which cannot be achieved by human efforts, not even with the ordinary help of divine grace and of extraordinary forms of contemplation. Visions and private revelations and the object of all of these are the mystical union. Are the, mystical union. the writers on Christian mysticism point out that union with God is the fruit of his grace and the reward of all who merit heaven. In the present life, it is attained only by a few to whom God deigns to give the special graces that are necessary. Such souls are the mystics in the history of the church, the chosen men and women 
who are spiritual mountaineers, while the bulk of Christians are mediocre plainsmen or are content to live in the valleys. Well, I don't quite agree with all of that uh, because that comes from the old school when the church used to think of, and this was written uh, uh, over 60 years ago, that comes from when the church used to think that only uh, priests and nuns and monks and deacons maybe, just maybe, uh, could become holy. All the rest of us had to be kind of peons in uh, the life of religion. Well, that drastically changed, as you know, or I hope you know, in uh, Vatican II, uh, when the church deemed that all mankind, regardless of his or her state in life, uh, are called to be holy. Now, called to be holy doesn't necessarily mean that they are holy, but they are capable of being holy. And that is always with the help of the Holy Spirit and the willingness to open their mind and heart to God. Now, that puts us all sort of uh, on the same playing field. But as you know, in any sport, uh, there are some stars and then there are just the ordinary players. Uh, but each one of them is required to fulfill a team. So we are all not only ready, willing, and able, and capable, but we have to open our minds and hearts to God, and that's kind of uh, where we have to sort of leave it. <clears throat> uh, there are some other things that I think we should really talk about. Why? Why does God favor some people in the way he has uh, with Father Damien and Elizabeth Ann Seton and uh, St. Teresa of Lisieux and St. Teresa of Avila and all of those that we talked about in this class. Uh, why does he favor those and not others? Well, we don't really know, but that again is part of God's plan of salvation where certain, and as I've mentioned it many, many times and I like because I I like to use this analogy or metaphor of uh, mosaics where the mosaic picture requires many, many different kinds of stones and some of them are very uh, brilliant and bright and very dominating and others are very plain and simple. Uh, but if you look at a mosaic, you'll see uh, the majority of the stones are rather plain and simple. Uh, it is the beautiful and the, and the great, the dominant, and so forth, uh, are relatively rare. But it takes all the stones to make the picture. All right? And that means that we are all capable of being a great saint, whether it be recognized by the church or our neighbors or anyone else, uh, is immaterial. It should be immaterial to us. It is only when we are there. But there's another reason. If you look back throughout Scripture, even into the Old Testament, there are many times when God interacts 
with human beings for a specific reason. We go all the way back to the time of Moses or Abraham, where God had uh, conversations with Moses and Abraham to bring forth specific purposes and points of his plan of salvation. Moses had many interviews with God, many uh, conversations. Uh, The greatest being, of course, uh, the Ten Commandments. And in the second time, you know, getting the Xerox copy after he broke the first one, uh, when he comes down the mountain, after being up there for quite a while, his face and his hair were uh, brilliant white and shined so greatly that people were frightened of him. And he had to wear a veil over his face for a considerable amount of time until gradually the light faded. All right. Uh, there are other saints in the Old Testament. We don't call them saints, but great personages. All the prophets, you might say, and Elijah and Elisha. But in the New Testament, we have the same thing. If you think about uh, the apparitions of uh, the angel uh, to Mary and Joseph just prior to the birth of Christ, we have uh, God interacting with human beings at that time. Again, as part of his plan of salvation, and they are given a major uh, point to fulfill. But take a look at one of the major uh, episodes which many of us probably overlook. Read very briefly from Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 17. It says, six days afterwards, six days after (laughs) Jesus was preaching to the people of uh, Judea, And he spent a great deal of time sort of outlining the whole idea of the kingdom of God. He says he takes Peter, James, and John and and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Just the four of them. And he was transfigured before their eyes. His face became as dazzling as the sun. His clothes as radiant as light. And suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with him. And then Peter, you know, Peter, sort of over-exuberant at times, said to Jesus, Lord, how good that we are here. With your permission, I will erect three booths. (coughs) We would call it tents today. All right. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed him. And out of the cloud came a voice which said, This is my beloved son, on whom my father <coughs> favor rests. Lord, how good it is that we are here. With your permission, I will erect three booths here. One for you, one for Moses, and for, uh, for Elijah. He was still speaking when suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And out of the cloud came a voice which said, This is my beloved Son, on whom my favor rests. Listen to him. When they heard this, the disciples fell forward on the ground, overcome with fear. 
Jesus came toward them and laying his hand on them said, Get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they did not see anyone but Jesus. Now, why did that take place? That's not much different than the many apparitions that uh, St. Teresa of Avila had and many of the other saints had. Anyone have a, a guess as to why? Well, yes, to prepare them for their their missions. But it's an, the other reason that I think is more important, really, is that, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, they heard about discipleship all the way up to this point, chapter 17 now. And what is discipleship? It's following and serving the Lord and God. And why? Why and who are they following? So it is to give mankind a glimpse of who God really is. It's to open their mind and heart to what the future holds for each of us when we reach heaven. But the message all along says that that comes at a price. The price of death to sin. And the price of suffering. And this we recognize because God himself in Jesus Christ suffered probably more than any other human being could possibly uh, endure before he was glorified in the resurrection. And I think when each of these different saints have these visions, manifestations of various kinds, it's to give the world a message that God is still there working through mankind and asking us to be patient with our sufferings and offer them up for the greater honor and glory of God and for their own salvation. And so when we have some kind of difficulty, as I am right now with my voice, and we often are feeling that we are overburdened or suffering, not necessarily physically, but sometimes emotionally. Sometimes it comes from financial problems or other worldly problems of some kind. Uh, it could be another family member that is becoming troublesome and it affects us. <clears throat> uh, there can be any ways of suffering, many ways of suffering. And if we offer these up, to God in prayer. That doesn't mean that they're going to go away. They can, but it doesn't necessarily follow that they will. <clears throat> but the idea is uniting yourself, your sufferings, your problems with those of Christ. Now, beginning next week, Holy Week, is one of the greatest times to do that. Probably the most important week of the whole year for Catholics and Christians alike that 
their sufferings should be united with God for the purpose of giving God honor and glory. And then, when the resurrection comes, we know that that's what's in store for us. The resurrection and eternal life. But I think if you look back and think about it, that's what all of these saints look forward to. I just got through reading a book on uh, Teresa Newman. I was, as I mentioned, I think, right in the first meeting, I was curious about her because I had not heard anything. And thanks to Betty Paleopolis, thank you, um, she loaned me a book that was written quite a while ago from which I just read this little bit on mysticism. <clears throat> and it opened my eyes to uh, who this woman was. And I did find some information that brought it more up to date uh, about her uh, last la- part of her life. She died in 1962. And she has reached the stage of venerable, and her cause for canonization is well underway. All right. We wondered, because uh, when I first tried to find any information on the Internet, uh, I, I came up with nothing for quite a while. But I finally did find something. And uh, I think it sort of helped close the door, you might say, on another saint who is well underway towards being recognized for the many, many things that she went through. <clears throat> you can see, I'll leave this up here if you wish. This is what she generally looked like. <coughs> but when she was in various ecstasies and enduring the sufferings of Christ, particularly during Holy Week, that's what she looked like. All right. So I'll leave this up here if anyone wishes to look at it. Uh, But I think that that helps to put things, at least for me, in its proper place. Sainthood has a reason beyond itself. And that is to open our eyes to the fact that God is still working through mankind and trying to get us to see that suffering is the way to heaven. And, well, that means it's time now for you (coughs) to tell us who your favorite saint is and uh, why. Joe? All right, hold on just a minute, because I want to record this so everybody can hear it. Go ahead. Quite imposing. Um, Eleven years ago, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer, and uh, a friend gave me a mask, gave me a card on Saint Peregrine. And at that time, I started praying to Saint Peregrine, and he has become my favorite saint. And I say his a prayer to Saint Peregrine each morning of my life. And you're here. I am here and clean as a whistle. Terrific. That's great. We should all clap for that. Uh, Gene? Uh, next, uh, my, uh, one of my favorite saints uh, is 
John, uh, Pope John Paul II. And uh, he was born on uh, May 18, 1920 in Poland. He was actually a junior. His full name was Carol Joseph Wojtyla. His dad was uh, also Carol, so he was a junior. And uh, he was baptized on June 20, 1920. He received his first Holy Communion at age nine, and he was confirmed at age 18. As far as his academic achievement is concerned, he uh, earned a doctorate in theology, and he became a professor in moral theology in 1948. Okay, these are the reasons why I think um, Pope John Paul II should be a saint. He showed the sense of openness and charity to the entire human race. He firmly believes in the Petrine ministry, and uh, he spent all of his energy in promulgating the principles of the Petrine ministry. So what is Petrine ministry? It is the, uh, it's how the Bishop of Rome, successor to Peter, serves the universal church and is considered a gift of the God to the church, a communion and service to the truth and charity, justice and peace, preserving dignity of human race. The other thing that uh, John, Pope John Paul II uh, was known for was his love for young people. And so he uh, established the World Youth Days and also emphasized the importance of family in the world meetings of families. He contributed to the drafting of the Constitution of Gautism. He met with the leaders of the states, uh, prime ministers, uh, head of states, uh, presidents, and uh, he met millions of faithful and uh, who were inspired by his presence. But the other thing too was that uh, what is uh, important was that he tried, he encouraged that dialogue uh, with the Jews and other religious uh, sects, which after all is the, I think the main one of the main goals of the Catholic Church is to be uh, to associate more closely with the other religions, so that they, it uh, uh, it preserves the uh, or the uh, it makes the uh, the university uh, of the church more more uh, real more real. And believe it or not, he was involved. Uh, Steve mentioned that he was involved in the canonization and beatification of saints, and now he is in in this himself. And uh, the other thing that uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, uh, what happened to him was that uh, he, uh, a, a Turkish guy, uh, tried to uh, kill him. He shot him four times in the Vatican City, and uh, he, he bled so so much that uh, he almost died. But fortunately, he uh, he survived. And uh, Pope John Paul II uh, forgave this uh, Turkish, Turkish guy Mehmet Agha. And uh, in fact, he asked the, uh, the Italian president to give him pardon, and he did. Now, who among you, if somebody tries to kill you, would forgive this, the criminal who tries to kill you? Maybe some of you would say, no way. Some of you may say, oh yeah, but I think it will, it's not going to be easy. But for Paul, for Paul John, Paul II, it was easy enough to do it. So. Uh, Mel emphasized that uh, it is not so much the, uh, the many, many good things that the person did during his lifetime, but it was more important to, to uh, that uh, the person uh, spent most of his life in uh, fulfilling the will of God. And I think that uh, 
even though uh, Pope Paul John II did a lot of good things that I think he exemplified and excelled in those two disciplines and that's why I think he should be a saint. Good man. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I would like to comment on that because I was looking up too about John Paul and all that he's done. So anyway, uh, but I, I go back a little bit because he, it was, he had a very exceptional uh, start in life or when he was 18 and he was in Poland and so many of his friends were captured by the Nazis and, but he was uh, he wanted to become a priest and he went to a he was taken into a secret seminary in Poland and I think someone had to be responsible for having secreted him away in, in this area I, there was so much going on and I think we have to thank Pope Pius XII for that and I have a, a little something on, on my hometown that um, my history teacher asked me later in life that what was going on when our priest flew to the Vatican practically on the eve of Germany invading Poland and he was deathly afraid of flying and I think somebody knew something that about this young man and what he would become and that's why I think there is something that some people do know well, we'll leave that as a mystery, but something to think about. Oh, and why did the Vatican, when the Vatican did, uh, and this was in the Wall Street Journal, just March 10th, that they opened up their records only up until 1939, and that was when they kept those quiet, yeah. I have no idea, but it, it's an interesting point. Thank you, Dorothy. Okay. Thank you. Anyone else? I, I thought that when we first started, you said to, to consider people that might not even be Catholic, that you would consider would be in, in a category like that. And one of the people that I would recommend that anybody read, I don't know if, if he would be... Um, saint-like is Viktor Frankl have any have any people in here heard of Viktor Frankl and, and um, I was so moved by reading the very first book that he wrote which is called Man's Search for Meaning and it's his experiences as a practicing psychiatrist who was sent to Auschwitz in Germany and the the book is about what a, an individual goes through as he is degraded and, and, and how you survive that. And I think that the most moving thing of, of that whole story, it's very difficult to read because the uh, the experiences are just devastating. But he comes out after that and he says, all I could think about was thinking of the future time when I could talk to people about what my experience would be and, and explain the psychological uh, aspects. 
And he says, but deep down, I believe that all people are really good people. The other book that he wrote that is also a wonderful book is called The Doctor and the Soul. And in it, he talks about how as a practicing psychiatrist or a, a physician of any kind cannot even begin to heal the mind or the body until they first heal the soul. And his is a very ecumenical approach. He's, he talks about divine power. He doesn't specifically um, uh, promote Judaism or Christianity, but rather universal truth and a belief in, in some divinity and that the only way to survive life at all is not to suffer from poverty of spirit, which I think is the biggest poverty we have right now. Thank you. Thank you. Very good. Victor Frankel has um, he's considered the father of logotherapy, and um, I had the benefit of one of my professors was a logotherapist and had studied that. But um, I read his book when I was, you know, just a, a freshman student nurse when I was like 17, 18 years old, and. The, the book he wrote was Man's Search for Meaning. And I think that um, what he illustrated in his writings and his life experiences were that, you know, you, you can survive anything if you find meaning in the moment. And it's in the moment. And that's where you, your, your belief in God and your trust in him to help you through that time. That You know, you can't... Um, we all have our own journeys in life. We all face tragedies and triumphs. But when you're at your darkest hour, if you can get through those days and the, through those moments and finding the meaning in the moment. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Sister Maria Faustina who uh, was born in Poland in um, 19, um, August 25, 1905, died in October 5, 1938, and she was born uh, the third child in a family of ten, very poor people, but she was very religious from the time she could walk or talk, and um, she begged her parents to... Uh, to join the join the convent, and her parents refused to let her go. And finally, when she was 16, she went off and she started to work for a family just to make money for herself and for her parents. And during that time, uh, she did approach a convent and was admitted to this convent. And um, she became. Um, well, her work was as a gardener and as a cook and as a person who cleaned. And the book said, although her, her uh, life was very boring and monotonous, she in the meantime had a deep commitment and conversation with God regularly. And Jesus talked to her and, uh, all the, during the time that she was in the convent and during her life. And he said to her that um, 
He said, I sent prophets wielding thunderbolts to my people. Today I'm sending you with my mercy to the people of the whole world. I do not want to punish mankind, but I desire to heal it. And so he asked her to tell people to pray the Divine Mercy, which um, the Divine Mercy chocolate. And also he asked her to have people pray the Divine Mercy Novena, which begins um, on Good Friday, I believe, and it goes for 10 days. Each one of those days, he says, um, the first day, today bring bring to me all mankind, especially all sinners, and immerse them in the ocean of my mercy. In this way, you will console me in the bitter grief into which the loss of souls plunges me. And then... um, on the second day he says today bring me the souls of priests and religious and immerse them in my unfathomable mercy they who gave me strength to endure my bitter passion through them as as through channels my mercy flows and so he goes on uh, and tells her each one of these days to bring uh, a special group of people. He says, Today bring me all the devout and faithful souls. Immerse them in the ocean of my mercy. These souls brought me consolation on the way of the cross. They were that drop of consolation in the midst of ocean of bitterness. And um, it, it, it was, um, it is, um, to me, a very moving form of prayer. Thank you, Jill. St. Faustina is the originator of the mercy, uh, Divine Mercy uh, Novena and Chaplet. Yes, a, a prayer that is used uh, in conjunction with the Rosary. And it is said here every Friday, uh, first Friday that is, uh, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in the church, uh, there is a a recitation of the uh, Divine Mercy Chaplet. Uh, And it is uh, put on by the Filipino uh, community here at at St. Clair. Dale mentioned that God says to St. Faustina that he had sent many prophets as his voice to the people. And that's, of course, the same thing that I was saying earlier, that in the Old Testament, God uses uh, the vehicle of uh, many of the prophets and others. And in the New Testament, He uses the saints as well as the church to get across uh, much of his program and uh, his uh, plan of salvation. So it's important that we kind of see how this all fits together. Any problem? Any question? Anyone else want to give us uh, their idea of their favorite saint? Norm? Uh, yeah. Just a moment. Just a moment, Norm. 
Yeah, in the mid 1800s, uh, when uh, Garibaldi was trying to pull the states together in Italy, there was a lot of antagonism towards the church. Okay, and uh, Don Bosco, uh, what he did is uh, he kind of brought kids in uh, who were uh, orphans, street toughs, urchins, and uh, he kind of fed them, tried to clothe them, and in some places, you know, they would get, you know, 50, 60 kids. They were thrown out of that. Finally, uh, somebody gave them some land, and they had an oratory with about 400 kids that they took care of. Anyway, uh, St. Uh, John Bosco, uh, he established an order called the Salesians, and uh, they were taken from the name St. Francis de Sales. And that was that. That's what that was from. Uh, I went to uh, Salesian boarding school when I was in the seventh and eighth grade. And uh, okay. And what I say? Another thing about Bosco, he wasn't afraid to use his fist, you know, to get what his kids needed. But uh, the uh, the uh, boarding school is the best thing that ever happened to me. So when I went into service basic training, I said, man, I've been through all that crap before. You know, just lay back and don't sweat it, you know, except for a few additional things. But anyway, uh, he was a terrific saint. And, uh, you know, and in those days, I mean, to give you an idea, uh, they wouldn't do it now. We'd go down on Wednesdays and, 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 and Saturday afternoons. We didn't have school. And so Father would take us down a local river. And uh, just to give you an idea, it was San Diego River down in L.A. area. And in those days, they grew bamboo in the river. So what we'd do, just to give you an idea what a great school it was, what we'd do, we got down there, we'd cut the bamboo down and make spears and swords, believe it or not. And he would divide the class, the eighth grade or whatever, yeah, the eighth grade. He would divide the class in half and he would have a big piece of bamboo and when he touched it in the middle everybody would charge each other and just whip the you know what out of it and he'd bring back to school and you'd have these wealth on you and man it was just hey. in other words they really took, of your, took care of your aggression and all that it was good stuff anyway end of story <laughs> well yep there was uh, that was in the 40s you know late 40s and you might say that that was a form of tough love, eh? Yeah. Okay. Very good. Interesting point. Uh, what I'd like to find out from you now is what would you like to study if and when we have a next class? Anyone uh, give it some thought or think about it? Yeah. It would be interesting, I think, to have a short session on the digital and what part it plays in the overall development of Christianity and the Catholic Church. Uh, the Didache is a book similar to, or you might say it was one of the original uh, catechisms of the Church and developed around the 3rd or 4th century A.D. Um, it had a lot to do with formation of everyday Christian life. Uh, but to spend time on it, I, I'm not 
I just don't know that much about it to see what we could do. But it's worth looking into. It's a very interesting subject. I've never had anybody bring it up before. I have a copy. No, I don't. No, maybe I, no, I don't have it with me. I have a copy of it. Uh, I thought I had it with me, but I don't. Um, but uh, that would be a very interesting subject. Yeah. Joe? In all your discussion about saints, uh, you, you frequently talked about the Catholic Church. Yes. You said several things that I had no idea about. I think it would be very interesting to, at least to me, now I've not been to this, my first session with you, so I don't know if you'd cover church history or if that would be of any interest to people. It would be to me. All right, uh, church history. Let's write some of this down because uh, I think we could make quite a list out of it. Yep, that one won't get us anywhere. I don't know if anyone taught Father Arthur when he did the Bible timeline. No, he did the catechism. Yeah. Who did the Bible timeline? Was that Father Arthur? Yeah. That was very good. The Jeff Cavins. Uh, Anyone else going to that? Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, that was, that was kind of a short one. Yeah. That's not quite how you spell it, though. I forgot. The idea is. D-I-D-A-C-H-E. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That looks better. History of the church. Anyone else? How about some of the old prophets? Is he Are you ready? I was thinking of the visions like Marianne, yeah, what Marianne, or Mary Lou just said is that 
a year or so ago when we did the book of Deuteronomy it was prefaced by um, a section that we call the four major periods of uh, Jewish history uh, you see every sort of 500 years from the time of Abraham to the time of Christ around every 500 years Judaism changed drastically uh, for many reasons good and bad alright and that was the one that we did a couple of years ago. That would take most of uh, Old Testament history times. Uh, but you see, within the 10 week series, you can only cover so much. Uh, think, for example, Ezekiel. I love teaching the prophets. But if you don't understand why the prophets came, and understand the whole idea of the Jewish monarchy which reigned from the 11th century BC to the 5th century BC then the prophets don't make a lot of sense it's a balancing act between evil of the prophets of the king, uh, the evil of the kings during that time and the prophets that God brought in to try to balance uh, the evil uh, and that's why after the Babylonian captivity and the return to uh, Egypt uh, after a short time the prophets died out because they were no, no longer necessary All right. any other topics All right, well we won't make any decisions tonight but I want to uh, get your ideas of what you would like to uh, talk about and study and discuss in future sessions. So with that, this ends our session for this period of time, and I hope you've gained something out of this 10-week series. On the same, but most important, I hope that you will consider what it takes to be a saint. And don't don't think that you're never worthy enough to be a saint. Uh, saint Francis wasn't either at one time. Neither was Saint Paul at one time. But there comes a time in life when you turn your life over to God, and that's when sainthood can begin. It's not when you get to heaven that counts. It's what happens as you step out of the door tonight and give yourself to God for his honor and glory so with that let us close with a prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Lord we thank you we thank you for this 10 week series we thank you for many graces and blessings that you have showered upon us in many ways each in our own way we also ask that regardless of what has been said up here we hope that you let us hear what it is that you want us to hear. Help us to open our minds and our hearts always to what you have to say to us, not only through Holy Scripture, but through each other and through the church. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Thank you very much. Thank you.